Dracula by Bram Stoker. Presented by the Oakville Players. Previously, Mina and Jonathan return to Exeter and take up residence with Jonathan's employer, who makes Jonathan a partner, leaving him everything in his will. After attending the old man's funeral in London, Jonathan receives a shocking health setback when he sees a young version of the Count in the street. Dr. Seward, Van Helsing, Arthur and Quincy are at Lucy's bedside when she dies, leaving a beautiful and unnatural corpse. Renfield escapes again, only to get into a street fight with men who are carting away some wooden boxes from the house next door. Van Helsing writes to Lucy's friend Mina. Oh, Madam Mina, it is for us as good that I ask to lift much and terrible troubles. May it be that I see you. Episode 6, The Devil's Undead. The Westminster Gazette, 25th September, a Hampstead mystery. During the past two or three days, several cases have occurred of young children straying from home. In all these cases, the children were too young to give any properly intelligible account of themselves. It has always been late in the evening when they have been missed and have not been found until early in the following morning. The first child missed gave as his reason for being away that a bloofer lady had asked him to come for a walk. Some of the children, indeed all who have been missed at night, have been slightly torn or wounded around the throat. The wounds seem such as might have been made by a rat or small dog. The police of the division have been instructed to keep a sharp lookout for straying children, especially when very young, in and around Hampstead Heath, and for any stray dog which may be about. Extra, extra! The Hampstead Horror! Another child injured! The Westminster Gazette, 25th September, the Bluefer Lady Extra Edition. We have just received intelligence that another child, missed last night, was only discovered late in the morning at Shooter's Hill. It has the same tiny wound in the throat as has been noticed in other cases. It was terribly weak and looked quite emaciated. It too, when restored, had the common story to tell of being lured away by a Bluefer Lady. Telegram from Mrs. Harker to Van Helsing, 25th September. Come today by quarter past ten train if you can catch it. Can see you any time you call. Wilhelmina Harker. <laughs> Journal, 25th September. I cannot help feeling terribly excited as the time draws near for the visit of Dr. Van Helsing. He attended poor dear Lucy in her last illness. He can tell me all about her. That must be the reason for his coming. It's concerning Lucy and her sleepwalking. Oh, that awful night on the cliff must have made her ill. I had almost forgotten in my own affairs how ill she was afterwards. I hope I did right in not saying anything of it to Mrs. Westenra. I should never forgive myself if any act of mine, were it even a negative one, brought harm on poor dear Lucy. I hope too Dr. Van Helsing will not blame me. I feel I cannot bear more just at present. I suppose a cry does us all good at times, clears the air as other rain does. Perhaps it was reading the journal yesterday that upset me, and then Jonathan went away this morning to stay away from me a whole day and night, the first time we have been parted since our marriage. 
It is two o'clock, and the doctor will be here soon now. I am so glad I have typewritten out my own journal, so that in case he asks about Lucy, I can hand it to him. It will save much questioning. Later. He has come and gone. Oh, what a strange meeting, and how it all makes my head whirl round. I feel like one in a dream. Mrs. Harker, is it not? That was with Miss Mina Murray? Yes. It is Mina Murray that I come to see. That was friend of that poor dear child Lucy Westerner. Madam Mina, it is on account of the dead I come. Sir, you could have no better claim on me than that you were a friend and helper of Lucy Westenra. I have read your letters to Miss Lucy. I know that you were with her at Whitby. Uh, she sometimes kept a diary. You need not look surprised, Madam Mina. It was begun after you had left, and it was in imitation of you. And the diary, she traces by inference certain things to a sleepwalking in which she puts down that you saved her. I come to you and to ask you to tell me of it, all that you can remember. I can tell you all about it. Ah, then you have good memory for facts, for details. It is not always so with young ladies. No, Doctor, but I wrote it all down at the time. I can show it to you if you like. I could not resist the temptation of mystifying him a bit. I suppose it is some of the taste of the original apple that remains still in our mouths. So I handed him the shorthand diary. He opened it, and for an instant his face fell. Then he stood up and bowed. No, you, you so clever woman. <laughs> Will you not so much honor me and so help me as to read it for me? Alas, I know not the shorthand. By this time my little joke was over, and I was almost ashamed. So I took the typewritten copy from my work basket and handed it to him. Forgive me, I could not help it. But I had been thinking that it was of dear Lucy that you wished to ask, and because I know your time must be precious, I've written it out on the typewriter for you. And may I read it now? I may want to ask you some things when I have read. By all means, read it over whilst I order lunch, and then you can ask me questions whilst we eat. He settled himself in a chair with his back to the light and became absorbed in the papers. When I came back, I found him walking hurriedly up and down the room, his face all ablaze with excitement. Oh, Madam Mina, how can I say what I owe you? This paper is as sunshine. It opens the gate to me. I am dazed. I am dazzled with so much light. And yet the clouds roll in behind the light every time. Oh, but I am grateful to you, you so clever woman, if ever. Abraham Van Helsing can do anything for you and yours. I trust you will let me know. It will be pleasure and delight if I may serve you as a friend. There are darknesses in life, and there are lights. You are one of the lights. But doctor, you praise me too much, and, and you do not know me. Not know you? I, who have studied all of my life, men and women, I have read your diary that you have so goodly written for me and which breathes out truth in every line. I, who have read your so sweet letter to poor Lucy of your marriage and your trust not know you, <laughs> and your husband. Tell me of him. Is he quite well? Is all that fever gone, and is he strong and hearty? He was almost recovered, but when we were in town on Thursday last, he had a sort of shock. A shock? And after brain fever so soon? What kind of shock was it? 
He thought he saw someone who recalled something terrible, something which led to his brain fever. And here, the whole thing seemed to overwhelm me in a rush, the whole fearful mystery of his diary and the fear that had been brooding over me ever since came all in a tumult. I threw myself on my knees and held up my hands to him and implored him to make my husband well again. He took my hands and raised me up and made me sit on the sofa. My life is a barren and lonely one, and so full of work that I have not had much time for friendships. But since I have been summoned to here by my friend John Seward, I have known so many good people and have seen such nobility that I feel more than ever the loneliness of my life. I am glad, glad that I may be here and of some use to you. For if your husband suffer, he suffer within the range of my study and experience. Thank you a thousand times. You have taken a weight off my mind. If you will let me, I shall give you a paper to read. It is long, but I have typewritten it out. It is the copy of his journal when abroad, and all that happened. You will read for yourself and judge. And then when I see you, perhaps, you will be very kind and tell me what you think. I promise. I shall stay in Exeter tonight. I shall in the morning come to see you and your husband, if I may. You must come to lunch with us and see him then. So he took the papers with him and went away. Letter delivered by hand from Van Helsing to Mrs. Harker, 25th September, 6 o'clock. Dear Madam Mina, I have read your husband's so wonderful diary. Strange and terrible as it is, it is true. I will pledge my life on it. His brain and his heart are all right. This I swear before I have even seen him. So be at rest. I shall have much to ask him of other things. Yours, the most faithful, Abraham van Helsing. Can it be all possible? Or even a part of it? If I had not read Jonathan's journal first, I should never have accepted even a possibility. Poor, poor, dear Jonathan, how he must have suffered. Letter from Mrs. Harker to Van Helsing, 25th September, 6.30pm. My dear Dr. Van Helsing, a thousand thanks for your kind letter, which has taken a great weight off my mind. And yet, if it be true, what terrible things there are in the world. And what an awful thing if that man, that monster, be really in London. I fear to think. Your faithful and grateful friend, Mina Harker. Journal, 26th September. I thought never to write in this diary again, but the time has come. When I got home last night, Mina told me of Van Helsing's visit. She showed me in the doctor's letter that all I wrote down was true. It seems to have made a new man of me. It was the doubt as to the reality of the whole thing that knocked me over. I felt impotent and in the dark and distrustful. But now that I know, 
I am not afraid, even of the Count. He has succeeded, after all, then, in his design in getting to London, and it was he that I saw. Van Helsing is the man to unmask him and hunt him out, if he is anything like what Mina says. He was, I think, surprised to see me. When I came into the room where he was and introduced myself, he took me by the shoulder. But Madame Mina told me you were ill, that you had had a shock. It was funny to hear my wife called Madame Mina by this kindly, strong-faced old man. I was ill, and I have had a shock, but you have cured me already. And how? By your letter to Mina last night. I was in doubt, and then everything took a hue of unreality, and I did not know what to trust, even the evidence of my own senses. Doctor, you don't know what it is to doubt everything, even yourself. No, you don't. You couldn't with eyebrows like yours. You will pardon praise from an old man, but you are blessed in your wife. I would listen to him go on praising Mina for a day, so I simply nodded and stood silent. So true, so sweet, so noble, so little egoist. And you, sir, I have seen your true self since last night. You will give me your hand, will you not? And let us be friends all our lives. He was so earnest and so kind that it made me quite choky. May I ask you for some more help? Perhaps you will come to town if I send to you and take Madamina too. We shall both come when you will. After our meal, I saw him to the station. I had got him the morning papers and the London papers of the previous night. His eyes suddenly seemed to catch something in the Westminster Gazette, and he grew quite white. Mein Gott! So soon! Twenty-seventh September. Truly, there is no such thing as finality. Not a week since I said finis, and yet here I am, starting fresh again, or rather going on with the same record. Van Helsing went to Exeter yesterday and stayed there all night. Today he came back and almost bounded into the room at about half past five o'clock and thrust last night's Westminster Gazette into my hand. What do you think of that? I looked over the paper, for I really did not know what he meant. But he took it from me and pointed out a paragraph about children being decoyed away at Hampstead. It did not convey much to me until I reached a passage where it described small punctured wounds on their throats. It is like poor Lucy's. And what do you make of it? Whatever it was that injured her has injured them. Do you mean to tell me, friend John, that you have no suspicion as to what poor Lucy died of? Of nervous prostration following on great loss or waste of blood. And how's the blood lost or waste? I shook my head. I had not now, nor then, any theory for Lucy's condition. You are clever man, friend John. Reason well, and your wit is bold. But you are too prejudiced. You do not let your eyes see, nor your ears hear, and that which is outside your daily life is not of account to you. Do you know all the mystery of life and death? Can you tell me why in the Pampas and elsewhere there are bats that come at night and open the veins of cattle and horses and suck dry their veins? Good God, Professor. 
Do you mean to tell me that Lucy was bitten by such a bat? Can you tell me why the tortoise lives more long than generations of men? Why the elephant goes on and on till he have seen dynasties? Can you tell me why men believe in all ages and places that there are men and women who cannot die? I was getting bewildered. He's so crowded on my mind, his list of nature's eccentricities and possible impossibilities that my imagination was getting fired. I had a dim idea he was trying to teach me some lesson, as long ago he used to do in his study at Amsterdam. Tell me the thesis, so that I may apply your knowledge as you go on. My thesis is this. I want you to believe. To believe what? To believe in things that you cannot. He gets the small truth first. Good. We keep him and we value him. But all is the same. We must not let him sink himself all the truth in the universe. You think then that those so small holes in the children's throats were made by the same that made the hole in Miss Lucy? I suppose so. Oh, would it was so, but alas, no, it is worse. Far, far worse. In God's name, Professor Van Helsing, what do you mean? He threw himself with a despairing gesture into a chair and placed his elbows on the table, covering his face with his hands. They were made by Miss Lucy. For a while, sheer anger mastered me. It was as if he had, during her life, struck Lucy on the face. I smote the table hard and rose up. <coughs> Dr. Van Helsing, are you mad? Would I were? Madness were easy to bear compared with truth like this. Oh, my friend, why think you that I go so far round? I take so long to tell you so simple a thing. Was it because I wish to give you pain? Oh, no. My friend, it was because I wished to be gentle in the breaking to you. For I know you have loved that so sweet lady. Tonight, I go to prove it. Dare you come with me? This staggered me. A man does not like to prove such a truth. First, I propose we go off and see that child in the hospital. Dr. Vincent of the North Hospital, where the papers say the child is, is a friend of mine. We'll let two scientists see his case, and then... And then? He took a key from his pocket and held it up. Then we spend the night, you and I, in the churchyard where Lucy lies. This is the key that locks the tomb. I had it from the coffin man to give to Arthur. My heart sank within me, for I felt that there was some fearful ordeal before us. We found the child awake. It had had a sleep and taken some food, and altogether was going on well. Dr. Vincent, Van Helsing's friend, took the bandage from its throat and showed us the punctures. There was no mistaking the similarity to those which had been on Lucy's throat. They were smaller, and the edges looked fresher, that was all. We asked Vincent to what he attributed them, and he replied that it must have been a bite of some animal, perhaps a rat. About ten o'clock, we started for the cemetery. As we went further, we met fewer and fewer people. At last, we reached the wall of the churchyard, which we climbed over. With some little difficulty, we found the western retomb. The professor took the key, opened the creaky door. Then he fumbled in his bag, and taking out a matchbox and a piece of candle, proceeded to make a light. The tomb in the daytime, and when wreathed with fresh flowers, had looked grim and gruesome enough. 
But now, some days afterwards, when the flowers hung lank and dead, their whites turning to rust and their greens to browns, the effect was more miserable and sordid than could have been imagined. Van Helsing went about his work systematically. He took out a turnscrew. What are you going to do? To open the coffin. You shall yet be convinced. Straightway, he began taking out the screws, and finally lifted off the lid, showing the casing of lead beneath. The sight was almost too much for me. It seemed to be as much an affront to the dead as it would have been to have stripped off her clothing in her sleep whilst living. I actually took hold of his hand to stop him. You shall see. I had expected a rush of gas from the weak old corpse. We doctors, who had had to study our dangers, had become accustomed to such things, and I drew back towards the door. Holding up the candle into the aperture, Van Helsing motioned me to look at the opening. I drew near and looked. The coffin was empty. It was certainly a surprise to me and gave me a considerable shock, but Van Helsing was unmoved. Are you satisfied now, friend John? I am satisfied that Lucy's body is not in that coffin, but that only proves that it is not there. Ah, well, we must have more proof. Come with me. He put on the coffin lid again, gathered up all his things and placed them in the bag. We opened the door and went out. (coughs) Behind us, he closed the door and locked it. (coughs) Then he told me to watch at one side of the churchyard whilst he would watch at the other. I took up my place behind a yew tree and I saw his dark figure move until the intervening headstones and trees hid it from my sight. It was a lonely vigil. Just after I had taken my place, I heard a distant clock strike twelve, and in time came one and two. I was chilled and unnerved, and angry with the professor for taking me on such an errand, and with myself for coming. I was too cold and too sleepy to be keenly observant, and not sleepy enough to betray my trust. So altogether, I had a dreary, miserable time. Suddenly, as I turned round, I thought I saw something like a white streak moving between two dark yew trees at the side of the churchyard farthest from the tomb. A little way off, beyond a line of scattered juniper trees which marked the pathway to the church, a white dim figure flitted in the direction of the tomb. I could not see where the figure disappeared. Van Helsing ran up to me, his eye moving towards the last place where I saw the white figure. Are you satisfied now? No, I said in a way that I felt was aggressive. Then come with me and see! He motioned me towards the tomb. I felt that horrid sense of the reality of things, in which any effort of imagination seemed out of place. Outrageous as it was to open a leaden coffin, to see if a woman dead nearly a week were really dead, it now seemed the height of folly to open the tomb again when we knew, from the evidence of our own eyesight, that the coffin was empty. Van Helsing had a way of going on his own road, no matter who remonstrated. He took the key, opened the vault, and again courteously motioned me to proceed. Van Helsing walked over to Lucy's coffin, and I followed. He bent over and again forced back the leaden flange. And then a shock of surprise and dismay shot through me. There lay Lucy, seemingly just as we had seen her the night before her funeral. She was, if possible, more radiantly beautiful than ever, and I could not believe that she was dead. The lips were red, nay, redder than before, 
and on the cheeks was a delicate bloom. She has been dead one week. Most peoples in that time would not look so. There is no malign there in her face, see? And so it make hard that I must kill her in her sleep. This turned my blood cold, and it began to dawn upon me that I was accepting Van Helsing's theories. He looked up at me, and evidently saw the change in my face. Do not press me too hard all at once. I am willing to accept. How will you do this bloody work? I shall cut off her head and fill her mouth with garlic. And I shall drive a stake through her body. It made me shudder to think of so mutilating the body of the woman whom I had loved. And yet, the feeling was not so strong as I had expected. I was in fact beginning to shudder at the presence of this being and to loathe it. She have yet no life taken, so that is of time. But then, we may have to want Arthur, and how shall we tell him of this? If you know this, and yet of your own senses you did not believe, how then can I expect Arthur, who know none of these things, to believe? Let us go. Tomorrow night, you will come with me to Berkeley Hotel at ten of the clock. I shall send for Arthur to come too, and then so find young man of America that gave his blood. Later, we all shall have work to do. So we locked the tomb and came away, and got over the wall of the churchyard, which was not much of a task, and drove back to Piccadilly. Twenty-eighth September. I was almost willing to accept Van Helsing's monstrous ideas, but now they seem to start out lurid before me as outrages on common sense. I wonder if his mind can have become in any way unhinged. Surely there must be some rational explanation of all these mysterious things. Last night, a little before ten o'clock, Arthur and Quincy came into Van Helsing's room. He told us all that he wanted us to do, but especially addressing himself to Arthur as if all our wills were centred in his. I hope you would all come with me, for there is a grave duty to be done. You were doubtless surprised by my letter. I was. Arthur and I talked it over, but the more we talked, the more puzzled we got. Till now, all I can say for myself that I'm about up a tree as to any meaning about anything. Me too. Then you are near the beginning, both of you, than friend John here, who has to go a long way back before he can even get so far as to begin. It was evidence that he recognized my return to my old, doubting frame of mind without my saying a word. I want your permission to do what I think good this night. That is, I know much to ask. Therefore, may I ask that you promise me in the dark, so that afterwards, though you may be angry with me for a time, you shall not blame yourselves for anything. I don't quite see his drift, but I swear he's honest and that's good enough for me. May I ask what it is we are to do? I want you to come with me, and to come in secret, to the churchyard at Kingstead. Where Paul Lucy is buried? And when there? Enter the tomb! Professor, are you in earnest? Or is this a monstrous joke? And when in the tomb? Who opens a coffin! This is too much! I am willing to be patient in all things that are reasonable, but in this the desecration, the grave of one who... This night, our feet must tread in thorny paths, or later, and forever, the feet you love must walk in the press of flame. Take care, sir. Take care. There are mysteries which men can only guess at. Believe me, we are now on the verge of one. But I have not done. 
May I cut off the head of Aunt Miss Lucy? Heavens and earth, no. Not for the wide world will I consent to any mutilation of her dead body. Dr. Van Helsing, you try me too far. I shall not give my consent to anything you do. I have a duty to protect her grave from outrage, and by God, I shall do it! My Lord Gottelming, I too have a duty to do! A duty to others, a duty to you, a duty to the dead, and by God, I shall do it! All I ask you now is that you come with me, that you look and listen, and if, then later, I make the same request, you do not be more eager for its fulfillment even than I am! Oh. It is hard to think of it, and I cannot understand. But at least I shall go with you and wait. It was just a quarter before twelve o'clock when we got into the churchyard over the low wall. Van Helsing led the way. When we had come close to the tomb, I looked well at Arthur, for I feared that the proximity to a place laden with so sorrowful a memory would upset him. But he bore himself well. The professor unlocked the door, and seeing a natural hesitation amongst us for various reasons, entered first himself. The rest of us followed, and he closed the door. He then lit a dark lantern and pointed to the coffin. Friend John, you who have missed me here yesterday. Was the body of Miss Lucy in that coffin? It was. You hear? He took his screwdriver and again took off the lid of the coffin. Arthur looked on, very pale but silent. When the lid was removed, he stepped forward. Van Helsing forced back the leaden flange, and we all looked in and recoiled. The coffin was empty. For several minutes, no one spoke a word. Your word is all I want. I wouldn't ask such a thing ordinarily, but this is a mystery that goes beyond any honor or dishonor. Is this your doing? I swear to you, by all that I hold sacred, that I have not removed nor touched her. They you with me outside, unseen and unheard. And things much stranger are yet to be. He opened the door and we filed out, he coming last and locking the door behind him. Oh, it seemed so fresh and pure in the night air after the terror of that vault. How sweet it was to see the clouds race by. How sweet it was to breathe the fresh air that had no taint of death and decay. As to Van Helsing, he took from his bag a mass of what looked like thin, wafer-like biscuit, which was carefully rolled up in a white napkin. Next, he took out a double handful of some whitish stuff, like dough or putty. He crumbled the wafer up fine and worked it into the mass between his hands. Then he took, and rolling it into thin strips, began to lay them into the crevices between the door and its setting in the tomb. I am closing the tomb, so that the undead may not enter. What is it that which you are using? The host. I brought it from Amsterdam. I have an indulgence. In respectful silence, we took hiding places assigned to us close around the tomb. I, who had up to an hour ago repudiated the proofs, felt my heart sink within me. Never did tombs look so ghastly white. Never did tree or grass wave or rustle so ominously. There was a long spell of silence. A big, aching void. Then, from the professor pointed, and far down the avenue of yews, we saw a white figure advance. A dim white figure which held something dark at its breast. The figure stopped, and at the moment a ray of moonlight fell upon the masses of driving clouds and showed in startling prominence a woman, dressed in the sediments of the grave. 
We could not see the face, for it was bent down over what we saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a pause and a sharp little cry, such as a child gives in sleep, or a dog as it lies before the fire and dreams. We were starting forward, but the professor's warning hand kept us back. And then as we looked, the white figure moved forwards again. My own heart grew cold as ice, and I could hear the gasp of Arthur as we recognized the features of Lucy Westenra. Lucy Westenra, but yet how changed. The sweetness was turned to adamantine, heartless cruelty, and the purity to voluptuous wantonness. We could see by light that fell on Lucy's face that the lips were crimson with fresh blood, and that the stream had trickled over her chin and stained the purity of her lawn death robe. When Lucy, I call the thing that was before us Lucy because it bore her shape, saw us, she drew back with an angry snarl such as a cat gives when taken unawares. Then her eyes ranged over us. Lucy's eyes in form and colour, but Lucy's eyes unclean and full of hellfire. At that moment, the remnant of my love passed into hate and loathing. Had she then to be killed, I could have done it with savage delight. With a careless motion, she flung to the ground, callous as a devil. The child that up to now she had clutched strenuously to her breast. The child gave a sharp cry and lay there moaning. There was a cold-bloodedness in the act which wrung a groan from Arthur. When she advanced to him with outstretched arms and a wanton smile, he fell back and hid his face in his hands. Oh, come to me, Arthur. Leave these others and come to me. My arms are hungry for you. Come, and we can rest together. Come, my husband, come. There was something diabolically sweet in her tones. As for Arthur, he seemed under a spell. Moving his hands from his face, he opened wide his arms. She was leaping for them when Van Helsing sprang forward and held between them his little golden crucifix. She recoiled from it, and with a suddenly distorted face full of rage, dashed past him as if to enter the tomb. When within a foot or two of the door, however, she stopped, as if arrested by some irresistible force. Then she turned, and her face was shown in the clear burst of moonlight. Never did I see such baffled malice on a face. The beautiful colour became livid. The eyes seemed to throw out sparks of hellfire. The brows were wrinkled as though the folds of the flesh were the coils of Medusa's snakes, and the lovely blood-stained mouth grew to an open square. If looks could kill, we saw it at that moment. Answer me! Oh, my friend! Am I to proceed in my work? Do as you will, friend. Do as you will. There can be no horror like this ever anymore. Coming close to the tomb, he began to remove from the chinks of some of the sacred emblem which he had placed there. We all looked on in horrified amazement as we saw when he stood back. The woman, with a corporeal body as real at that moment as our own, pass in through the interstice where scarce a knife blade could have gone. We all felt a glad sense of relief when we saw the professor calmly restoring the strings of putty to the edges of the door. When this was done, he lifted the child. Come now, my friends. There is more to do, but not like this of tonight. As for this little one, he is not much harm, and by tomorrow night he shall be well. We shall leave him where the police will find him and send to home. My friend Arthur, you have a sore trial, but after, when you look back, you will see how it was necessary. You are now in the bitter waters, my child. By this time tomorrow, you will, please God, have passed them, 
and have drunk of the sweet waters. Arthur and Quincy came home with me, and we tried to cheer each other on the way. Twenty-eighth September, night. It was odd to notice that by common consent we had all put on black clothes. Of course Arthur wore black, for he was in deep mourning. But the rest of us wore it by instinct. We got to the churchyard by half past one. Van Helsing, instead of his little black bag, had with him a long leather one. The professor unlocked the door and we entered, closing it behind us. Then he took from his bag the lantern, which he lit, and also two wax candles which when lighted, he stuck on other coffins so that they might give light sufficient to work by. When he again lifted the lid off Lucy's coffin, we all looked and saw that the body lay there in all its death beauty. But there was no love in my own heart, nothing but loathing for the foul thing which had taken Lucy's shape without her soul. I could see even Arthur's face grew hard as he looked. Is this really Lucy's body, or only a demon in her shape? It is her body, and yet not it. Wait a while, and you all see her as she was, and is. She seemed like a nightmare of Lucy as she lay there. The pointed teeth, the blood-stained voluptuous mouth, the whole carnal and unspiritual appearance seeming like a devilish mockery of Lucy's sweet purity. Van Helsing, with his usual methodicalness, began taking the various contents from his bag, including a round wooden stake, some two and a half or three inches thick, and about three feet long, sharpened to a fine point. With this stake came a heavy hammer. Before we do anything, let me tell you this. It is out of law and experience of the ancients and of all those who have studied the powers of the undead. When they become such, there comes with the change, the curse of immortality. They cannot die, but must go on age after age, adding new victims and multiplying the evils of the world. Friend Arthur, if you had met that kiss before poor Lucy die, or again last night when you opened your arms to her, you would in time, when you have died, have become Nosferatu, as they call it in Eastern Europe. The career of this so unhappy dear lady is but just begun. Those children whose blood she suck are not yet so much diverse. But if she die in truth, the tiny wounds of the throats disappear and they go back to their place, unknowing ever of what has been. But the most blessed of all, when this now undead be made to rest as true dead, then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall again be free. My true friend, from the bottom of my broken heart, I thank you. Tell me what I am to do, and I shall not falter. Brave lad, this stake must be driven through her heart. It will be a fearful ordeal, but it will be only a short time, and then you will rejoice more than your pain was great. But you must not falter when once you have begun. Only think that we, your true friends, are around you. When we begin our prayer for the dead, I have the book here. Strike in God's name! Arthur took the stake and the hammer, and when once his mind was set on action, his hands never trembled nor even quivered. Van Helsing opened his missile and began to read, and Quincy and I followed as well as we could. Arthur placed the point over the heart, and as I looked, I could see its dint in the white flesh. Then he struck with all his might.
The thing in the coffin writhed, and a hideous blood-curdling screech came from the opened red lips. The body shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. The sharp white teeth chomped together till the lips were cut and the mouth was smeared as a crimson foam. But Arthur never fought it. He looked like a figure of Thor as his untrembling arm rose and fell, driving deeper and deeper the mercenary stick, whilst the blood from the pierced heart welled and spurted up around it. His face was set, and high beauty seemed to shine through it. And then the writhing and the quivering of the body became less. Finally, it lay still. The terrible task was over. The hammer fell from Arthur's hand. He reeled and would have fallen had we not caught him. For a few minutes, we were so taken up with him that we did not look towards the coffin. When we did, however, a murmur of startled surprise ran from one to the other of us. <gasps> Good Lord. There in the coffin lay no longer the foul thing that we had so dreaded and grown to hate that the work of her destruction was yielded as a privilege to the one best entitled to it. But Lucy, as we had seen her in life, with her face of unequaled sweetness and purity, True that there were there, as we had seen them in life, the traces of care and pain and waste, but these were all dear to us, for they marked a truth to what we knew. And now, Arthur, my friend, dear lad, am I not forgiven? Forgiven? God bless you that have given my dear one her soul again, and me peace. Now, my child, May kiss her. Kiss her lips if you will, as she would have you. No longer is she the devil's undead. She is God's true dead, whose soul is with him. Arthur bent and kissed her. And then we sent him and Quincy out of the tomb. The professor and I sawed the top off the stake, leaving the point of it in the body. Then we cut off the head and filled the mouth with garlic. We soldered up the leaden coffin, screwed on the coffin lid and gathering up our belongings, came away. Outside, the air was sweet, the sun shone, and the birds sang, and it seemed as if all nature were tuned to a different pitch. Now, my friends, one step of our work is done, but there remains a greater task, to find out the author of all this sorrow and to stamp him out. Shall you not all help me? Each in turn, we took his hand, and the promise was made. Dracula, the radio play miniseries. Episode 6, cast. Kenneth Sergianko as Dr. Seward. Robert Harrower as Van Helsing. Heather Smith as Mina. Duncan Cairns as Quincy, Arthur, reporter. Anir Malik-Nur as Jonathan Harker. Tina Aurora as Vampire Lucy, Paperboy. Directed and edited by Robin Sadaboy and produced by Alex Ragozino for the Oakville Players. For information about Creative Commons licensed music used in this episode, see the episode description. Sound effects from Pixabay and freesound.org. It's a weird line to say hiss like a cat. I don't know how that's going to play. It's like a Oh! I thought you were going to say hiss like a cat. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> forbidden cat girl. Capitalized in brackets. <laughs> forbidden cat girl. It's like a cat. <gasps> I'd never seen a <gasps> dead lady look like that. <gasps> <gasps> oh. <gasps> my lord. Good, <gasps> good, good lord. <gasps> oh my. Man. Ah. Mine. God! Jeepers, creepers. <laughs>